I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are... The Movie Lovers. Welcome to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. Yes, hello. In this episode, we are recording on... In a lovely location. Yes. This is Independence Day, the 4th of July on uh, our recording day. And we are actually in a guest house in West Seattle overlooking the Puget Sound. So we've done our best to try to soundproof our area. As well as our puppy. Right, our, our dog is vacationing with us. Because we are good fur parents. But there are fairies and such uh, going by, and so if there is any background noise, we apologize. We are trying to block out as much as possible. It's actually quite lovely. There's a lot of activity on the water right now. There's even a couple kayaking, and their like Labrador dog is on the kayak with them. So it's really, really fun to watch, and I hope everyone has had a really good 4th of July. Yes, we definitely do. Okay, so a little bit about the movie lovers. If this is your first episode, each episode we talk about our weekend review. Uh, move on to the main event, which is a main review or topic of discussion, and then finish with film faves, our list of 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode, we'll be discussing the year so far, and our film faves will be our countdown of our 12 favorite movies from the year 2011. With that, Shannon, do you want to get us started with our week in review? I would love to. I got to watch a beautiful film called Arranged. It's about a Jewish woman as well as a Muslim woman who are in the teaching profession and come across each other and find that they are the only two that have anything in common within their school environment, within their workplace. Both of them are at that phase where their parents or the matchmaker is trying to find them a partner for the rest of their lives, and they find that they can relate to each other quite well. This is taking place at a school where there are a lot of different cultures of kids, and so it's really rich in a variety of characters of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different countries. It is directed by Stefan Schaefer as well as Diane Crespo. And I really enjoyed this film, not only because, you know, after a really long time, I got to be exposed to a whole bunch of different cultures at once, but I really enjoyed the acting from the two actresses and I gained some insight into both of these religions. You also get an idea, if you never knew what this felt like, there is a scene where the principal is telling either woman at different times or at the same time that they don't have to wear, they don't have to cover their head, they don't have to respect their religion. Um, and it's really coming from a place of what I can gather is she had a bad experience with her religion and maybe she stepped away from it. So either she was an Orthodox Jew or she was something else. 
Very interesting. And where did you find this movie? Ah, yes. I found it on Amazon, and I believe it's on Prime. Excellent. Very cool. What else did you watch this week? Well, on Jeff's recommendation, I watched Hounds of Love. And this is a crime, true crime film about a couple in Australia in 1987 is when the film seems to take place. So let's clarify. This wasn't necessarily on my recommendation because I hadn't no, seen... No, but it kind of was because you were like, Well, just it. hold time out. No. I haven't seen this movie before, but it was among the most highest uh, critically acclaimed movies of the year so far. But I know that Shanna has a thing for crime stories particularly true crime, and that's, as I understood it, what this movie was. Also, watching the trailer, I could tell it was, it was fairly disturbing, so I wanted her to screen it for me and, and, and let me know whether or not it was a movie I should check out. So, I have not become a member of Does the Dog Die website. Oh, yes. This is a, a website that you can use as a resource if you are not a fan of seeing dogs die in movies. You know, if you completely bawl your eyes out and fall to pieces like me, right. it's a fantastic website. Unless nobody has updated the newly released film. Right. As I understand it, it is 100% user, uh, what do you call it? Based. You, yeah, user-based. So it relies on users to update the resource uh, with uh, what happens in movies. So you so, can look up a movie and it might not have information about it, which apparently is what happened to you. And then you might think that, okay, you're in the clear because it's not there. But that's not necessarily the case. I did not have the ability to log in at the time. To update it for people, for my fellow respecters of the hounds. <laughs> um, no pun intended. So the, there is a dog in that film, and the dog does die. So just anyone who's sensitive to that, they know that that's going to happen. And that's not my, really a spoiler if you're saving people. Mild spoilers. So, anyway, this film was beautifully shot. It had some slow motion cinematography happening. Instantly, you can tell this is not happening in America, and I wasn't actually sure about that because the film starts off silent, so you don't hear accents with people talking. But I did recognize the way its school field is set up, the way it has this tennis court, seemingly tennis court, and it's actually a netball court, a sport played in countries like South Africa and Australia and New Zealand. So instantly I was transported into another world, really, because that's not my world. So that was, that was kind of fun, going to a different part of the world. And also another time, because isn't it set in the 80s? 87. Mm. And was it obvious about its time period? If you are aware of that kind of architecture, so South Africa and Australia are pretty closely influenced by the same things. So I recognized the houses that they show are of a particular time, that particular time. I also noticed the uniforms the girls were wearing were very particular of that time. You look at uniforms, school uniforms that children are wearing in the more updated schools now, schools that might have started in the recent 10-year period. Mm -hmm. It's completely a completely different look. 
So to clarify, this film is about a, a couple that are serial killers who abducted women, yes? They actually abduct girls below the age of 18. So it's teenagers that have a weak moment and they prey upon that. And that's when I take them and they keep them for a few days and then they dispose of them. And this isn't really a spoiler because this is a true life event. And really what you would be watching this film for is the cinematography, the suspense, the thrill. Now, Jeff had also said to me that the ending is worth everything that you go through. I felt really disappointed about that. I'm not going to spoil anything, but I am going to give my feelings. I well, watch... well, well, well to, just to clarify that statement, again, uh, because I hadn't actually seen it, what I was imparting to Shanna was something I had read from a few critics is it's a very unpleasant, difficult experience, but those who are brave enough to go through it will be rewarded by doing so. If you are not someone that watches crime shows like Criminal Minds and Bones and, I mean, Bones is light compared to Criminal Minds, but if you're not watching hardcore crime shows, mm. this will be a pleasant, rewarding end for you. But if you are familiar with those shows, it's just going to be like, a, oh, okay. And that's, Why is that? Can well, I can't really spoil it, can I, my love? Well, do you mean like... It'll be too familiar feeling. It's too soft. Mm, too soft. The wow. ending is okay. too soft. When I want something of revenge or breakaway or breakthrough, you know, whichever way you want to look at it, how this story structure is going to occur, I really do need something big. I need to feel something big. And it was just very subtle. So it's a really good subtle film. They don't really fill it with noise as in, oh, we're going to put a special effect here, a special effect there, and we're going to layer three special effects upon each other, or we're going to use sound plus music plus screaming plus uh, blood. You know, it's like they're dealing with one element at a time. Uh, so you like the movie then? No. Okay. <laughs> Look, it had familiar elements to me. The mm. houses, the uniforms, the sport, what the girls acted like, you know, seemed familiar to my culture. But I don't know the true crime story, so I'd have to look into that and then see how it compares. But the ending was not my favorite ending. You so, know, you think of Inglorious Bastards on the scale of revenge or like, I don't know, Kill Bill. Well, how about, like, compare it to another serial killer movie? Like, let's say, Silence of the Lambs. Oh, God, that's totally all worth it. Every part of that film, as uneasy as it makes you, everything that's happening is totally satisfying because everybody gets their comeuppance and there's a really strong female character and she's really smart mm. because this is a smart thriller. But this film, Hounds of Love, it... You know, it's it's real. I mean, you're, you're dealing with someone who gets manipulated by her husband. She thinks that her husband loves her, so she's jealous every time the husband's with whoever they've kidnapped. And it becomes this... Really, it's not just uneasy because it's serial killers about to do something to this girl. It's uneasy because the relationship between the serial killers is really vile as well. And 
Not a uh, recommendation for the Hounds of Love on Amazon for rent. That's not what I said. You're not listening to me. You said you didn't like the movie. I didn't like it okay. because I'm a hardcore crime person. Right. If Which I... is really the people who are going to be attracted to this movie, right? Because I'm not, right? Mm. And it looked like it was way too unsettling for me. If, if you want a thrill, mm-hmm. then go for this film. But if you are used to a particular kind of crime, like if you your mind has been conditioned to criminal minds, this film might fall flat for you. But if anyone disagrees, I would love to hear your thoughts on why it doesn't fall flat for you. So Fair enough. That would be great. All right. Did you uh, have anything else in your week? No, let's hear about your week. I just have one movie that I'd like to talk about. I actually just watched it today. It's called Tony Erdman. It's a German film that was a bit of a sensation last year, and I'm just now catching up with it. It's basically a nearly three-hour film. What? (laughs) That's how long that was? Yes. Guys, I walked in with the last 30 minutes. Oh, my gosh. I'm really interested to hear what you say now. Okay. So, it's a nearly three-hour film about an estranged father and daughter. The father doesn't seem to live a very wealthy life. Uh, we, we get hints of him being a teacher in the beginning of the film. You know, past middle age, and while his daughter is probably in her mid-30s, she's highly successful, very corporate lifestyle, but hardly spends any time to connect with her dad, is always too busy, hardly has any time, and so on and so forth. She even will pretend she's on the phone just to avoid a moment alone with him. This movie was is billed as a comedy, and I don't know if it's just a matter of the difference between German and American comedic sensibilities. I mean, I... But... But it didn't always quite connect with me. I mean, the guy, he's supposed to be a bit of a jokester. And he will do or say things that are supposed to, feel like they're supposed to be funny. Feel like, and you know, he'll <laughs> say like moments later, oh, it was a joke. But it doesn't come across as that funny. And I'm not a guy who needs you know, stupid, obvious pratfalls or anything like that. I can appreciate your run-of-the-mill, highbrow comedy now and then, you know. But it was a little strange movie for me because things just kind of happened. You sound like <sighs> someone describing a teenage pregnancy. That's funny. <laughs> One of the, what, what drives the story of the film is the father pretends to be a business coach in order to spend time with his daughter. He has a wig, he has fake teeth, that's that's his disguise. And it's really weird, you don't see him make this decision, it just all of a sudden pops up on screen with this decision and, and trying to pass him off as himself off as the title character. I have very mixed feelings about this movie because at the one, on the one hand, it's really long. It, I mean, 
that when I saw that it was two hours forty two minutes, I won't lie, I was a little intimidated by that length because the premise didn't seem like it necessitated that length, and I honestly feel like there's in a lot of scenes in the movie that could have been cut out that aren't essential to the plot of the movie necessarily doesn't necessarily drive the story forward and again this might come down to a difference of sensibilities between german cinema and american cinema i don't know that i've seen too many german films maybe about half a dozen myself i'm not as into german cinema as other countries uh but yeah i i kind of like the movie I feel like it's slightly overrated. I read a lot that said that it's really long. If you could get through the first half, you'll eventually have this emotional payoff. You seem in the to end. be running into a few of those this week. Right, right, right. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> I admit the movie got funnier in the last 30 minutes. Like, you saw the last 30 minutes of it. And there are scenes where you were laughing out loud during. Well, I could tell you, those were the only scenes that were laugh out loud funny. Well, is that the kind of comedy that was happening throughout the film? No. No, no, it wasn't. I laughed because I thought it was more bizarre than anything else. I laugh at bizarre situations. The last 30 minutes do help. There's a scene that is a little bizarre. But the rest of the movie isn't like that. So, yeah, I, I know that there's an American remake in development. And normally, I, I actually scoff at American remakes of foreign language films. But I actually feel like in this case, an American remake might improve on this story. It might be more... What's the word? Economical in its storytelling. And it might ex- it might explain character motivations a little bit better. What I wouldn't want to see is you never in this ver- film, you never see like what caused directly them to be estranged. Yeah. You just get the sense that this is something that kind of developed over time as she became more and more successful. And I would, I would hate it if the American version did some sort of flashback or some sort of early scene that took place in the past that tried to develop some emotional resonance that, that was the root of their issues. I would hate to see that happen, but I do feel overall an American remake does have a lot of potential to improve on this movie. There's going to be thought jokes. Well, there was fart jokes in this one, too. They were? Yeah, in all honesty. There was a couple wow. moments. And Jack Nicholson is rumored to be approached for the lead in I this. I thought he wasn't acting anymore. Ah, uh, that's the thing. This might be the role that gets him out of retirement. And I could see him doing it. I mean, if you've seen About Schmidt, you could kind of see him in this role. It's not that far off from that character. So, anyway... That's Tony Erdman, which I got from Netflix rental disc. I don't know that it's available to stream anywhere, uh, but it could be on Amazon. I'm not sure. Anyway, that's my week in review. 
Let's get to our week in review. Oh, what did you want to talk about? The Batman Lego movie. Oh, cool. Okay. Hello. Why don't you start us off? Okay. I really enjoyed this movie. Of course, I was excited, especially after the Lego movie a couple of years ago. That was a beautiful masterpiece of animation and so much fun and really a great way to connect to your inner child. And what I really was fond of with this film was how they turned Batman into a needy child. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. You look at Batman's story and how could he not have issues? Like, surely he can't always be putting on this face of, I must save the city. The city must be saved. And I, I have the finances to save the city with my equipment that I will invent or make or hire someone to make. I really enjoyed that at one point in the film, Alfred is saying, oh, you have to go to the Scarlet event. And Batman, is, well, Bruce Wayne, who's wearing Batman's face mask, what is it's, it called? It's called the cowl. Okay, yeah. the cowl says, no. And this Lego piece falls down flat on his face. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's throwing yeah. a little tantrum. And yeah. it was great because that is how I feel as an adult. No, 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 no. So <laughs> I really enjoyed that film. I highly recommend it to anyone. And that those were my thoughts. Yeah. What do you, what I, do you think? I have to say, straight off, I really enjoyed the film, too. It is a lot of fun. If you're a longtime Batman fan, as I am, someone who maybe grew up as all the Tim Burton Burton films and that entire franchise was being released, basically anybody who's grown up watching Batman since the 80s, you're going to find a lot of references in here to enjoy. And there, and there is a really great theme of family that's played with that I really, I've, I really kind of enjoyed. I did think it fell short creatively of the Lego movie and uh, the th- things that the Lego movie achieves with its third act. I don't think the Lego Batman movie necessarily aims to be as groundbreaking or phenomenal creatively as the Lego movie was. And that's fine. It is definitely fairly solid for what it is, which is just a really enjoyable, really well-written, fun time with the family. Uh, but I just didn't think it was as good or as great as the Lego movie was. Do you think that's because when the Lego movie was released, it was the first time we got to see something like that? Like what? Legos on screen or what? The way they animated the Legos, the way they gave personality to them. Not necessarily, although I, I do see what you mean. It was quite impressive uh, on first viewing. And very surprising how brilliant they were able to make what is essentially building blocks and make something really cool out of it and really fun. And the animation was 
high-end enough that it actually looked like they were stop-motion uh, Legos. And that, I think that's still the same. The, the animation quality is just as good, I think, in the Lego Batman movie. Just the story that, and the creative, the creativity behind it isn't quite there. I think you raised some good points, but I also feel like the Batman Lego movie is supposed to be a more subtle version of the Lego movie. I feel like the Lego movie was a foundation and that the Batman Lego movie is meant to kind of build upon that and you're supposed to fill in the gaps yourself. Well, let me, let me, you said that you think it's a more subtle version of the Lego movie and I I would be very curious about that because I don't think there's anything subtle about this movie. I think it's painfully subtle. In the Lego movie, we see Emmett think of the man upstairs and a hand in his mind reaches for him. Sure, sure, sure. There's that hint. That's a hint. You're saying there's something similar in there's the Lego similar Batman doing movie. That in the Batman movie, but it's not as obvious. Where the Joker goes? Yes. Okay, I see. Hmm. I would have to rewatch it with that in mind. It's really subtle that maybe there is a scene that got cut mm. that helped bridge from subtlety to just in case you guys didn't get it, here's what's actually going on. I feel like that is where it's at. Hmm. Maybe. It definitely didn't have this big reveal that was like this big aha moment well, in the I mean, film. What and would the aha moment be if it's happened already? Well, I, I don't know. I'm not saying, I'm not arguing that it should have the same moment. Mm -hmm. I am saying that it doesn't have anything in the film that tries to be more than what it is. I think within that subtle scene that I am talking about, there was a moment of self-realization and allowing your barriers to come down so that you can bring in family, bring in friends, allow yourself to love again. And I thought that that was pretty good. But yes, it is subtle. So you need to watch it again. Well, at any rate, we both agree it is a lot of fun, uh, a blast, and a great time. Hilarious, probably almost a laugh-a-minute movie. The kind of movie where when you're laughing, you miss other jokes that are flying at you. So it's definitely worth checking out. That's uh, now available on Blu-ray, and you can rent it on Amazon. Is there anything uh, else from our week you want to talk about? Oh, I wanted to maybe give a tip about rentals. Okay. So I had rented the Lego Batman movie and kept it for, I believe, five days because I just, time was so moving quickly and away from me that I couldn't even drop off that DVD. And we rented two other movies via Amazon and I feel like it's much better to just rent something online than it is to rent a physical copy because you don't even get access to the special features on a rented physical copy. Well, that depends. Sometimes you do, but you the unfortunate thing is you're talking about Redbox or DVD Express, where, where we rented from. The unfortunate thing is, unlike with rental stores back in the day, 
you really only have the one night rentals, and you get charged for every single day that there that you haven't returned them. I remember. I mean, they were talking five to ten years ago, but um, you know, some stores they were two night rentals. Oh. Uh, sometimes there are three. Sometimes there are five. You know, it mm-hmm. depended on the the story that you went to, and even here, Scarecrow, if it's a new release, you have I think it's two days. Oh, okay. So, but you're you're right. Uh, the point being, with the the disc dispensers, it is less convenient than digital rental because yeah. of that because of that late fee. Yeah, and I also wanted to mention, you know. While I'm nannying, I show kids some of my movies I own, and I do it all through Vudu, V-U-D-U. It's when you get the digital copy of a movie as well, and you can enter it into this app, Vudu. Now, I'm mentioning this because one family that I look after, they absolutely fell in love with the Ghostbusters movie, the newest released one. Well, the mom... Thought she, you know, she rented it from this place. She had Xfinity, so she bought it from Xfinity. Then they switched to Dish TV, and they had, you know, they bought it from there. It was the wrong version, so they bought it on iTunes, and now she has, like, three copies. And so what I wanted to say to parents out there, you know, it's worth buying the physical copy because you could actually put the physical copy away and just use the digital code if you don't want scratches to come to the DVD. Right, right, right. Awesome. Um, yeah. So that's what I have for all of you out there. Cool. Well, thank you, Shanna. In this episode, our main event is the year so far. So we have reached the halfway point in our year. By the time you are hearing this episode, it is almost halfway through July. We are recording on Independence Day just a few days after the halfway point of the year. Almost time for Christmas. No, no, no. Just (laughs) don't. No. Go away. (laughs) But, so we thought it would be a good idea to kind of take a step back and look at the year that is film from January through June and see what sort of things we noticed about the year. And then eventually we'll talk about our picks for the worst of the year so far, and um, we created a combined list of our our top five movies of the year. But first, I want to throw this caveat out there. We tried really hard to catch up with uh, everything that was notable for the year, but there were a few movies that are not coming out to the rental market till about the time that you're going to be able to hear this episode, that maybe they didn't come into our area to watch in theater. We missed them in theaters. And those movies are Lost City of Z, Their Finest, Beatriz at Dinner, Megan Levy, My Cousin Rachel, Free Fire, Captain Underpants, and Colossal. We even ran out of time to see The Bad Batch, which was released in limited release, but also was available to rent simultaneously on Amazon, and The Zookeeper's Wife. So there's about 10 movies that uh, we, had it been up to us, we would have crammed and seen by now, but it just was not possible. So with that said, what sort of things, Shanna, 
did you notice about the year so far? I always feel like when there's a holiday or midterm breaks for the kids, that generally that there's going to be a good movie that weekend. There'll be a good movie and then there'll be a crappy movie. So something like the Batman Lego movie being released during midterm breaks for the kids. Um, that's what I'm referring to. And generally speaking, until it's about March, there's just crap for January, February, a little bit of March. It's like that's the, t- that's the dumping ground for sappy shit, like a dog's purpose, the space between us. And it's fine because sometimes you need the sappy shit and go for it. But I feel like there's too much of that, at least this year, there's too much dumping of that in that time frame. I feel like March starts reviving things again. Like in the first week, it's Logan. And in the second week, it's Kong Skull Island. It's at least something that like kind of gets your blood going, you know? It's like action-y. Then the third week was Beauty and the Beast. Everybody was waiting for that. And the fourth week was Power Rangers, with the fifth being the zookeeper's wife. So that's kind of what I noticed. And also sprinkled in between is these second-rate, yeah, let us feed this crap to your kids' minds, shitty movies like Boss Baby and things that have sequel number 33 or whatever, like Despicable Me 3 and uh, was there an Ice Age this year? No, I don't think so. But something got my attention on that where it's just, why are you still making those movies? Netflix seems to be releasing a film every month, maybe two a month, and I noticed that they were playing around a lot with crime movies, like the casting of Jean Benet, as well as The Most Hated Woman in America, a film about the woman that stopped prayer in public schools. It seems to be insane action thriller ideas contrasting with superhero movies contrasting with crack for kids contrasting with sprinkles of original ideas like the bad batch so it feels like this year we're kind of all over the place but at the same time you either have something to watch or you don't yeah that's that's a lot of interesting points uh to probably go backwards work backwards from your points Netflix. Now, that's something I struggle with acknowledging too much uh, in terms of this podcast because what they're doing is they're creating original content to debut on their streaming service, not just movies that debut in in the theater. So it kind of walks this weird line between TV movie uh, and theatrical movies. Like, I guess that's a good comparison. Well, at the same time, you have movies like Okja that just was released that actually was submitted for Sundance Film Festival. That's Bon Joon Ho film. It's a really, it's a really weird line that they're starting to walk in. Aside from our week in review section, I, I really have a tough time how, to what extent to acknowledge the Netflix releases, especially since if you actually look through the content that you've seen released this year, not not much of it is well regarded. 
they're having kind of a hard time of trying to spew out all this content because they want to be as original as possible with the content they're they're putting out there on their service. But they're, they're, it's all about quantity rather than quality, let's say, right? Where maybe there's a couple gems in there. So that's really interesting. As far as the releases during the first quarter of the year, you're absolutely right. Normally, January and February are dumping grounds for movies that the studios don't necessarily have much faith in. However, there were a couple of exceptions this year. We had John Wick Chapter 2 and Lego Batman movie released the same week. And I think even in January there was something that was released. I'd have to double-check that was noteworthy. March, however, has become one of the prime release months, and I think that's primarily due to Fox and Marvel. Uh, Logan was one of the big things that came out. So Logan was the, the thing that came out in March, and uh, whereas in past years it's been other films <clears throat> that have done very well. There's a f quite a few things I noticed this year that, that I think it's worth discussing. And feel free to chime in with some of your thoughts on this. First of all, just in the past six months, I noticed we had 18 sequels. That is almost two sequels a week, if you actually do the math, which is a little crazy. And I won't list them all, but I, I counted about 18 sequels, which is crazy, you know, only and only in the first half of the year, not the whole year, 18 sequels. Are we done? With sequels? Yeah. Oh, God, no. No, oh, no, no. I mean, you got okay. Thor, Ragnarok coming out later. I mean, there's, there's sequels I can't even think of. Planet of the Apes. Yeah, uh, War for the Planet of the Apes, right. So, anyway, that's pretty crazy. I also noticed... There were a handful of films that really tapped into nostalgia as a selling point. You had six films, Power Rangers, Baywatch, Chips, Train, T2, Train Spotting, Smurfs, The Lost Village, and Beauty and the Beast. Two-thirds of those, so four out of six of those, are based on content from the 90s. And I'm pretty sure, as I understand it, nostalgia is kind of a big theme in T2 Train Spotting. And I know, like Power Rangers, I went and saw that film. There's, there's moments in that movie that's absolutely playing on nostalgia of the fans, you know? And of course, Beauty and the Beast is nothing more than a remake of a 90s animated film. So. It's playing on the nostalgia of, of those who grew up with that movie, you know? So I thought that was interesting. The 90s are definitely coming, are in style right now, and playing with the nostalgia of 90s kids is definitely in vogue right now. Another thing I noticed was there's definitely a theme of family this year in films, be it Lego Batman movie, or even on the other side, the, uh, the film Logan had a father-daughter 
theme with it. Fate of the Furious, of course, always has a, a theme of family. Guardians of the Galaxy is all about oh, an alternative family. Good. You know, Diary of a Wimpy Kid had a, a pseudo-sequel slash revamp. Pirates of the Caribbean had offspring, yeah, offspring of Will Turner and, and what's her name, Kira Knightley's character, I can't remember at this point. And then, of course, you had... Elizabeth Swan. Thank you. I believe. Elizabeth Swan, yeah, I think that's accurate. And then you had Gifted, which was the Chris Evans film. That was all about... Oh, I didn't get to watch that. Yeah, we missed that one. So, it's interesting. Family is a recurring theme in many of this year's, actually, tentpole films. uh, Big blockbuster films, really. With the exception of Gifted and Diary of a Wimpy Kid. So I thought that was that's interesting too. You know, you it's it's normally the case that the first half of the year there's not a lot of quality films in wide release and that seems to be the case. I counted 9 critically re- well regarded films in in wide release that's come out this year so far versus 12 in limited release. I it feel it felt this year, more than any year I've experienced, I don't know that this is factually true, but more than but this year in particular, there was a lot to check out in the art house or you know, keep an eye out for those movies that opened and limited and maybe went a little bit wider, you know, to your uh, nearby Cineplex. A lot of those are the movies that we we missed, like. Lone Scherfig's Their Finest, and Beatrice at Dinner with Salma Hayek and John Lithgow, which I know you and I, we even talked about that in our summer uh, movie episode as one of our anticipated films. Yeah, I really wanted to watch that. Yeah, uh, Colossal, which was Anne Hathaway's newest film, directed by Nacho Vigalondo. That's, that's another one. So I thought that's interesting. I know that normally that's going to change and shift in the second half of the year, especially as we get into the fall, but that was no exception here. Most interestingly, though, aside from these themes of family, aside from there really not being much in wide release that's of top quality, but maybe similar to this whole plethora of sequel thing is... There might be franchise burnout. And I want to hear what you think about this, uh, Shanna. But there were a handful of franchise movies, movies that have done well in the past, that underperformed greatly this year. I'm talking, and I have all the, the figures of how much they made overall, what their opening figures were, what their budget was. But you think of Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. That is almost a sure bet franchise for Disney. It it underperformed. It is it has yet to make its budget back. And it's been in theaters for weeks now. Transformers usually a huge monster of a hit in theaters. It Barely squeaked in, I think, to the... I don't think it's even in the top ten right now, which is unusual. It hasn't even made half of its budget yet, which is unheard of for a Transformers film. Cars 3 
you know, these movies are usually around 150 million in their budget. It's looking to disappoint in that regard. Alien Covenant also didn't hit its budget. Despicable Me 3, it just opened at, uh, at recording time, but it's already projected to be the lowest earner of the Despicable Me franchise. Underworld, Resident Evil, Diary of Wimpy Kid. So it's really interesting because also none of these movies were critical hits either. So if the critics are tired of these movies and audiences aren't turning out for these movies, who are they for? You know, a lot of times during the press junkets, they'll say, you know, we made it for the fans. But the fans are clearly not interested in these movies anymore either. So I, I find that interesting too. I think you bring up a lot of great points, but in particular this one, I feel like sometimes with certain franchises, they're not going to get it until the numbers don't work out for them. They being the studio, you mean? Yes. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, especially like if you take Transformers as an example. It took five movies. I think it's number five that's out right now. Well, yeah, it's number five. Pirates of the Caribbean is number five, so it's really interesting. Yes, but in the case of Transformers in particular, they're only now coming up with the idea, oh, we should create an expanded universe, and we should have a Bumblebee spinoff movie and, and a whole bunch of other things. And I think that it's really unfortunate timing for them to come up with this idea for this franchise that creatively hasn't worked historically, but has brought in a lot of money domestically. But this time is actually failing and probably will be a bomb domestically anyway. You keep saying domestically. Have yes. you looked at nation, internationally how these movies are doing? Because maybe it's not for the domestics. Well, and that's that's what I, that's kind of part of my point because these I am going off domestic numbers, and my point is that maybe U.S. audiences are just getting tired of these franchises and they don't want to see any more of them. You know, I know that I know that worldwide grosses help save a lot of these a lot of movies period not just these movies but a lot of period a lot of movies period get saved by worldwide grosses you know international markets and that's that might be the case with transformers and pirates too but domestically speaking transformers has only made 102 million dollars out of its 217 million dollar budget mm. you know there's just too big they're they're not economical in terms of being efficient with their filmmaking and and i think maybe audiences are getting tired of them you know which leads me to some notes i made about the year so far in box office which i thought found interesting only three of the top 10 domestics opened at over a hundred million dollars which means the, that audiences are not coming out in droves for movies these days, okay? Those three movies, by the way, are the uh, top three grossing films of, of the year. Um, Guardians, Wonder Woman, Batman? 
No, Gar- it's Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy, and Beauty and the Beast. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Now, 11 of the top 20 films of the year so far opened at $50 million. All are sequels, part of a franchise, or based on something. Uh, being Boss Baby, which is based on a, a children's book, and Beauty and the Beast, which is a remake of the animated film. Okay. There is not any are not original product, okay? Of the top 20, Get Out is the only completely original movie. It is currently number seven with $175.4 million and a $33 million opening. The budget for that movie, Get Out, was $4.5 million. So that movie definitely struck a chord. That's really good. That's really good, especially yeah. for a culturally relevant horror film. I, I have not partaken in viewing that film. Right. So, interestingly enough, we had some winners and losers in studios. This was, so far, a rough year for Paramount. Transformers underperformed, shockingly, with only half of its budget to date. Then, its other releases were Triple X, what is it, The Return of Xander Cage, Ghost in the Shell, Baywatch, Rings, the sequel to the third, I think it's the second or third sequel to The Ring, and Monster Trucks. All. Wow. All of those movies bombed critically and commercially and unfortunately ghost in the shell out of all those movies was probably its biggest risk creatively and they just completely screwed the pooch there you know so they're having a really rough year paramount is so who do they need to fire and who do they need to hire which departments need to change that's a really good question and usually when studios are, are um, having a really rough year, it's usually whoever the head of the studio is that gets booted. And they, they change the heads. I don't know enough about the, the business to be able to, to spout off off the top of my head who is currently the head of Paramount right now. Or even when that person took over. Um, but that's a really good question, Shanna. I mean, it's one thing to research how well nostalgia is going to play, like you said earlier. But it's an entirely different thing to see who's actually going to enjoy it because you have something like Stranger Things, the TV show, Mm -hmm. that totally plays on the nostalgia parts of people like you and me. Mm -hmm. But it's beautifully combined. And then you have something like Baywatch that's just kind of in your face and obnoxious. So I want to know who's in charge of the stylings, I guess, the styling element of the nostalgic movies that they're trying to bring to us. I feel like Monster Trucks should have been made when my brother was seven. You know, that's when Monster Trucks were really cool in South Africa, at least. Mm. And I feel like they totally missed the ball on that one. Well, and even the concept that they came up with of how to make a movie out of Monster Trucks, you know, it does feel like something out of the 80s. You know, those those really 
wonky, cheap children's movies from the 80s that was about some sort of an alien or, or monster befriending a kid. I didn't think about that, but that movie does very much feel like that. And of course, it didn't do very well at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, I agree. The concept was a little off. Somebody needed to work on that concept because it was, you know, not good to begin with. Someone needed to figure something else out. I mean, I would have gone to go see a monster truck movie if it was, oh, there's going to be this this group of unlikely get-along-together people who've been forced into a situation because the school is having a competition and this is the only way you can save your neighborhood. Like, And you've got to work as a team and find this tire and that engine. And I would totally get into that. Come on, let's get on that, people. Let's go. <laughs> Right, so moving on, uh, Universal has had a mixed year, by the way. They've had more good than bad, though, with six of its eight films in the top 20. Uh, those being Fate of the Furious, Get Out, Split, Fifty Shades Darker, The Mummy, which, by the way, Mummy is still considered a huge uh, disappointment, even though it's currently in the top 20 of the year. Aud- there's been a huge drop-off in its second weekend. It didn't open very well. I think it opened at number four. Or something uh, that was supposed to be a franchise starter, and then Despicable Me three, and half half of those being critical hits. Actually, I think really only Fifty Shades Darker and The Mummy were not well reviewed at all, and then Despicable Me three and maybe Fate of the Furious got some mediocre reviews. So um, it's had uh, it's it's done decently financially with the mummy aside and it's it's had its mix of critical successes the big winner of the year though by far of course is disney because they had guardians of the galaxy and beauty and the beast both the top openers (laughs) the top openers of the year and the highest grocers overall Even Cars 3 and Pirates of the Caribbean, while still considered disappointments overall, made enough money to be in the top 20 of the year so far, domestically. So Disney is is coming out on top, and then they're only going to be even better when The Last Jedi opens at the end of the year. Oh my god, I keep forgetting that that's happening. Right, (laughs) plus they have more Marvel movies. By the time you hear this, Spider-Man Homecoming will have opened, and then you have Thor Ragnarok coming out later this year. So Disney is having a really good time. Absolutely. And And their timing with the kind of movies that they're making, I guess, is pretty good, too. Well, on the one hand, this is also what happens when you own three major companies, you know? You have Pixar and uh, Marvel and Lucasfilm. Is You're, that Coco film coming out this year? Right, that's a good point too. Yeah, okay. Pixar. That's that looks Pixar's like it's next be film. Stunning. Right. So this is Disney's year for sure, and and Beauty and the Beast was its its crown jewel of the year, uh, commercially anyway, because it's going to be really hard for any other movie to to top that one. That's what I've noticed so far about the year. Is there anything else that that you'd like to uh, remark on that you noticed? I guess something that I'm thinking about is this year's kind of filled with the contrasts that I talked about previously. And I'm really hoping that this year will bring about a change, will bring about a change for next year 
giving room for more original work. Because if people are getting sick of the fifth this movie, the fifth that movie, the third that movie, maybe that's going to spur about a change of let's create something original. We have enough happening in our real life. We can draw material from that. So I feel like maybe that's it's going to be the year that creates a catalyst for what's going to happen next year. Maybe. That's very optimistic. We will have to wait and see. And in some ways, it might take a couple of years before the effects of this year ripple ripple out to what we see in theaters. All right. So why don't you tell us, we both came up with our picks of the worst movie of the year so far. Shannon, why don't you go first? What is your pick for the worst movie of the year so far? It is The Circle. I love Emma Watson. Everybody knows that by now. And I'm a fan of Tom Hanks as well. There are a lot of people in this film who I'm a fan of. But this movie just fell completely flat for me. They didn't reach a goal that they had set, that they appear to have in the trailer. And it was just truly disappointing for me. And that's all I have to say, because it was disappointing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that that movie, I, I, I was right there with you and, and having high hopes for it. And, and it's unfortunate that it was Bill Paxton and Glenn Headley's last film. They both passed away months after the film's release. For me, the worst film of the year so far goes to Ghost in the Shell, which I think I talked about in a previous episode. You did. Probably at length. Yes. So you can check out the uh, the past episodes. I think it might have been episode two or three in which I talk about it. But basically, this is what happens when Hollywood takes a really smart property from another country, particularly anime, uh, and tries to adapt it. They basically made every wrong decision possible at every turn you're wrong you're all wrong oh, i thought you were saying i was wrong no. <laughs> i was playing with you yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah paramount you suck um <laughs> and it's also unfortunate because scarlett johansson has proven herself time and time and again to be a great actress and a really good action heroine And it looked like they were really trying hard to position this as being yet another franchise, unfortunately, for her to take on. And it just, it was not what should be done with this property. It was, it was terrible. Okay, enough of the negative. I will, I will stop. Again, if you want to hear more thoughts on Ghost in the Shell, check our previous episode. Let's get on to what we think are the best films of the year so far. And since we're only halfway through the year, we will just count down our top five films of the year. And I will start. What we did was we came together. It was was really tough. There was some hair pulling. I think you bit me a couple times. It was a lot of argument. But we pulled through. I'm still kind of bitter. I don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) (laughs) To combine our ideas of what were the five best movies of the year, I'm going to start with the two movies that Shanna hasn't seen, and then we'll proceed with the, the other three. 
that ended up being our consensus of the best movies of the year so far. Uh, first of all, at number five, Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. You're a fan of Shaun of the Dead, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, maybe even Hot Fuzz, then you're probably going to do just fine by checking out his latest film, which is also a lot of fun. It doesn't necessarily play with genre convention. This is a bank robber film where the lead character is the driver of the bank robbers, the one who is sitting in the getaway car and helps them get away every single time. What drives this movie forward, no pun intended, is the music in it. The character, he listens to music all the time to, because he has an issue with his, uh, his hearing. And so in order to drown out a, a constant sound that he hears in his head, he listens to music and he times the robberies to the music. It's really awesome. This movie stars John Hamm, Kevin Spacey. Oh, well, now I do want to watch it. See, there for you go. Uh -huh. Jamie Foxx. And I just forgot his name. It's criminal of me to do this, but the guy who starred in The Fault in the Stars is the lead character in this film. And he actually is the real deal. He's, he proves himself to be quite capable very charismatic, very likable. So it's it's definitely um, one of the, the best movies you could check out this summer and overall this year. Number four is Get Out. We talked about it earlier in terms of how well it did commercially. This thing was successful for a reason. It is a horror film, unlike anything you've seen before. You can try your best to guess at what's going on, and you will be wrong. Is it gory? I would say no, but it, it is violent, particularly in the last half of the film. It is really good at just ratcheting up the tension. As the film goes along, Ugh. you know something's not right, and that sense of something not is not right just increases, and you just are on the edge of your seat. See, I don't mind starting my day with a movie like that, but that's kind of how I felt about Hounds of Love. Watching it in the evening was not good for my psyche. That's really funny. <laughs> This also is a, an incredibly relevant film, and I think it has really great themes of race. And, you know, in a country where uh, African Americans are constantly clashing with, with white Americans and the 1%, and this film is incredibly relevant. So, Jordan Peele is someone to keep your eye on if you haven't already been from his comedic work. Shanna, why don't you tell us all about our number three pick for the best movie of the year? Wonder Woman is our number three, and we have talked so much about this. It shouldn't be a surprise then to anybody. This movie does so much right. And if you want to hear more about this movie, I suggest you go to our previous episode where we talk extensively about it as well as female directors. Our number two is Personal Shopper. 
This was a great film. Jeff tried to watch it without me. It was a big mistake. Well, you know, it's one of those where you think uh, someone's not going to be interested in a movie and you end up being wrong. But this is Olivia Asayas's latest film. Some people may be familiar with his previous work, The Clouds of Sils Maria. If you're not, you can catch it now on Criterion. I highly recommend doing so. This film, as well as Clouds of Sils Maria, stars Kristen Stewart. And it is one of the examples. We had a previous conversation about whether or not Kristen Stewart was any good as an actress. And Personal Shopper is one of those examples that, yes, Kristen Stewart is the real deal. She stars as a personal shopper to a celebrity who is actually also a medium, which means she can connect with the spirit world. The celebrity is a medium? No, Kristen Stewart is. It's just the way you said it was confusing to me. Right. This is a film that is one of those movies that you watch it and you think, I need to see that again. Because there is so much to chew on while watching this film. It's a film that is almost almost defies description. You can't put it in one box of genre. It's not a horror film. It's not a ghost story film. It's not a straight drama. It's, it's all of these things wrapped up in one. Would you say it's a film about dealing with death of a loved one? Yes. Could you classify it more in that box? Yeah, it definitely has elements of that in it, for sure, yes. It's definitely a film that, that leaves you with something to chew on when, when, when the credits roll. What do, you, what do you have to say about it? This film's interpretation of the spirit world and the spirit world connecting with the human world was a little creepy for my take. I like to think that it's a happy bridge, but this was kind of not a happy bridge. It's not terrifying at all, really, but I also enjoyed how they sort of showed the ghosts. Their visual effects were very subtle, Mm. but the cinematography was quite good when that was happening. Otherwise, you know, it was... It was okay cinematography. It wasn't about the cinematography. It was about her and what she was going through. Yeah, it's about the performances more than anything else. But you're right. Uh, for a film of a fairly minimal budget, it, the effects in it are actually fairly effective and, and impressive. For my experience, I understand what they're doing when they're filming the ghost effects. And I know that at the end of the day, it's about the story. You can tell it was, they were working within a budget, and that's fine. It didn't look bad. It all looked really well finished. So you're not going to be, like, jarred with a bad visual effect. Right. With that, Shanna, are you ready to share with everybody our pick for the best film of the year? Yes. Our pick for the year is Logan. We have talked about this before, I believe. Yeah, I think in our superhero episode where we reviewed Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, I think it came up as one of our favorite superhero films. But I rewatched this film a second time recently. And, you know, I was really struck by something. A lot of people, when they talk about this movie, especially fans of Wolverine, they talk about how cool it is that this movie finally shows 
Wolverine, unleashing and, and being Wolverine and all that, right? And conceptually, that sounds like it would be a lot of fun and really cool to finally see, right? You know, you got hints of it in X-Men 2, and, and this is what it would actually be, right? What struck me watching it a second time is how sudden and horrific a lot of the, the violence is in this film. It's not necessarily fun. It's very ugly. And I think that go I think that's purposeful and I think it's going to a lot of the themes of the film. You know that that is also why the film Shane is also referenced in this movie too. You know about violence. And so I thought that was that was really interesting and Definitely a different direction to take an X-Men movie, let alone any superhero movie. I feel like you're right. A lot of the times we hear that people were just really happy that this violent side of Wolverine was shown. But I think that what we're really seeing and what we're really feeling and interpreting is the real Logan slash Wolverine that is full of so much pain. You just see him wink and it looks painful, you know? And he's at the end of his line. He's done. He's been through so much. We know that there's no more X-Men left, you know? No more mutations. Is that correct? Mutations aren't naturally occurring anymore. Well, they do this interesting thing where they basically have written off the old... X-Men as we know them to be, but also made this different doorway for a whole new group of mutants, which, as I understand it, their next project, The New Mutants, is taking a page from. Uh, My only disappointment with that is they're actually casting known actors and stars rather than continuing with the cast that we see in this film. I most especially hope the um, revelation they have in in the woman who plays Lauren, who I forget her last name, but her first name is Daphne. I really hope she comes back in whatever film they have next because she was just a, a huge find for this film. Yeah, no one else should be touching that character except for her. Well, that character better come back too because I think that will be mm-hmm. a huge disappointment because she was such a huge... Uh, highlight in in so much of the movie how old is she at this point like in in reality how old is she right now i don't know her name is daphne king but i i don't see any information about her age she can't be more than 12 years old i imagine i'm just trying to anticipate that she'll come back in some shape or another Yeah, so anyway, Logan is our pick for the best movie of the year so far. If you haven't seen any of these five films, and honestly, I don't know why you haven't seen Wonder Woman in particular so far, you're probably the maybe one of ten people who haven't, definitely seek out all of these movies. They're all available except for Baby Driver and Wonder Woman to rent on Amazon. So get to it. So, we're, start, we're running pretty long. Let's get to film faves. Our favorite movies of 2011. For those who are uninitiated, film faves is our way of not only 
helping the audience get a better sense of what our favorite movies are, but also maybe discover some movies that you've missed over the years or haven't discovered yet. We pick 12 films, um, generally a year-by-year countdown, but sometimes of uh, different topics. Oh, and also, I always forget this. Always, 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 always forget this. Every film phase, we also try to direct you of where you can find these movies to stream. You can almost find every single movie to rent on Amazon, but only a handful of films from HBO Now, Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Hulu. Interestingly enough, more often than not, these movies are not available on those streaming services, which I think speaks a lot to what these services are lacking. But we do what we can to direct you when, uh, when we can. Now, with that, Shanna, kick us off. Number 12. Well, first off, making my list for 2011 was particularly challenging. I had maybe six absolute favorites, but had to kind of scrounge together what were the others. My number 12 is Midnight in Paris. This is available to stream on Netflix and stars. Handsome looking dude with blonde hair and a big nose. That would be Owen Wilson. <laughs> it's, it's a character nose. It's not like a huge obscene nose. Anyway, I enjoyed this film because as usual... There is a, an element of time travel happening. And it's happening, of course, in Paris during a time about the 1920s, I believe, where so many new things were happening. Modern art was happening. Dadaism was happening. And lots of self-realization in art and being expressed through art was occurring. Uh, he gets to meet the, is it Fitzgerald Scott? Scott Fitzgerald, um, the writer of The Great Gatsby, and his wife, and other important members of society during that time. Ernest Hemingway is another one. And, you know, he just gets totally enchanted. He's going through a terrible time in his life, realistically, and he steps into this carriage, I believe, and he's transported back in time. So that was really fun. My number 12, Midnight in Paris. What is your number 12? I'm going to start with the two best films of 2011, in my estimation. My number 12 is 13 Assassins, which is available on Netflix and Hulu. This is probably one of the only films by Takashi Miike that I can stomach. He he's, uh, loves to revel in brutality, most notoriously in the film Audition. If you've seen that film, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it, go check it out if you're a horror hound. But 13 Assassins, anybody who is familiar with Kira Kurosawa's films, particularly his samurai films, most especially Seven Samurai, are going to appreciate 13 Assassins. This is a film that kind of combines the sensibilities of Seven Samurai with modern sensibilities and Takashi Miike's sensibilities, um, where these 13 people are banding together to assassinate an incredibly brutal uh, emperor, I believe. If I'm not mistaken, he might be a uh, lord. It's been a while since I've seen it. This, this, this uh, film has an, an amazing final hour action scene where they're going through this this village area and all these traps are set up. It is very reminiscent of Seven Samurai in a lot of ways. Just a lot more 
visually visceral. It's, it's a great film. If you have not seen this film, seek it out. Shanna, you're number 11. Number 11 is The Help. I love Emma Stone. I love Viola Davis. And I love Octavia Spencer. I don't care what these women are doing. I will watch their film and they will probably make it to my top 12. So I enjoyed this film. I thought it was pretty well done. There's some awesome revenge moments. There's some totally bizarre moments. I feel it falls into the girly girl category of movies, which is not a bad thing, of course. Uh, We need to have something in that category. And I went to this film with two of my South African friends, and we related to a lot of it. So there's a lot of fun things that happen in this film, and there's a lot of ugly that happens in this film. And it's interesting how it's always contrasted in that way. That also stars Jessica Chastain, and I think her breakout year, too, where she was really starting to um, get some notice. My number 11 is what I think is the best film of 2011, uh, coincidentally at 11. It is... Why is it at number 11 if it's the best film of 11? Because this is my list of my favorite films, and sometimes, sometimes my most favorite movie is not the best film of that year. In this case, number 11 is Melancholia. This is also one of the few Lars von Trier films that I can stomach. This is my number 10. Oh, very cool. Okay, very cool. So I think this is his most fascinating work. It is not always fun to watch, sometimes it is fairly challenging. Sometimes it is unpleasant, but it is definitely fascinating. Kristen Dunst, I think, gives a career-best performance at this point in this film as a kind of forlorn bride-to-be who is about to be married... To Alex Skarsgård. Who wouldn't want to be married to him? Forgot about that. But... It's also on the eve of an apocalypse as a giant meteor, I believe, is about to collide with Earth. Well, the wedding isn't taking place on the eve of the apocalypse. That happens later. The whole feeling of the film changes. Okay. So, at any rate, it's it's right before (laughs) the uh, apocalypse with a meteor colliding with planet Earth. And... So you have like two-thirds of this film that is essentially this very melancholic, moody piece with these uncertain bride and all these characters who, who basically behave distastefully and to varying degrees. And I just find it to be a very fascinating film and one of his best films. And I won't, I won't belabor this, but why don't you tell us a little about what you think about it? There's a lot of great actors and actresses in this. You've even got Keith or Sutherland. Yeah. Yes. And there's a way to do things. There's a way not to do things. And then there's just be. So there's these different levels of self-discovery as you're growing as a human. And Kristen Dunst really helps bring her sister into that just let it be um, state of being, which can be very peaceful if you can get there. And... That's what I really enjoyed, that element. That was my number 10. Oh, and I was trying to remember, 
her sister, I believe, is played by Charlotte Gainsbourg, who has also starred in other films by Lars von Trier, most notably Antichrist, which I haven't had the fortitude to check out. I, um, as I said, Lars von Trier can be quite unpleasant. And yeah, so, have fun with that one. Yeah, I, I, I will pass on that. So, my next film is The Opposite End of the Spectrum, Crazy Stupid Love, starring Emma Stone, Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, and Julianne Moore. This is just one of those romantic comedies that tries to do something a little bit different. It's basically about Steve Carell going through a divorce after he, upon the request of his wife, who also cheated on him. And so he's trying to move past it, and he's trying to do so with Ryan Gosling's help. It was a kind of a, a, a ladies' man, a little bit of a player and, and stuff, but he's not he's not really sleazy. He's more classy, and, and he's a lot of uh, a lot of fun. And Emma Stone is kind of a B plot character who's also um, come to a certain degree of uncertainty about her longtime boyfriend, plus played by Josh Groban, uh, in a role where he's kind of picking, uh, making fun of his image, and. Yeah, Amirsa Tomei is also in the film. It's 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 a fun film. It doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily have a lot to say, but it is definitely enjoyable. My number nine is The Iron Lady, starring Margaret, starring Meryl Streep as Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister. Anything with Meryl Streep is going to be fantastic. Everybody knows that. It's film 101. What I loved seeing about the Iron Lady was Margaret Thatcher's tenacity and absolute belief and sense of moral goodness. There weren't any gray areas. It was black and white. And she stuck to her guns, and it was a good example of strong female character. That was also directed by uh, Philippa Lloyd, or Philida Lloyd, by the way, who's previously directed the musical Mamma Mia with Meryl Streep, too. So those of you who might be interested in the fact that it was directed by a female director also want to check out our previous episode where we highlight female directors and celebrate female directors. My next film is Source Code, starring Jake Hall. He stars as a member of the military who is recruited in an experimental technology where he can relive a moment in time to try to solve a terrorist bombing in a train. This film is visually very cool. It is conceptually very different and very interesting. It's from the director of Moon, Duncan Jones. It doesn't quite live up to that film. If you haven't seen that, seek it out. But it is a very good film just up to before the very last moment of the film. That's my only beef that just hurts the film a little bit. But you really care about the the lead character in this film, and 
his romance with Michelle Monaghan, who is quite charismatic in it. Uh, so yeah, that's my number nine. Source code. My number eight is Bridesmaids. And we have talked about this film before, but just know that it's a fun, hilarious film. It's got Melissa McCarthy. Who else, honey? Kristen Wiig. Who isn't in it? Rose Byrne. Wendy McClendon Covey. A different casting of what could have been the Ghostbusters. (laughs) A really good uh, set of women making jokes. uh, A great way of figuring out you know, if you have never been married before and you're going to get married, this is some of the stress that might come to you. And here's how to laugh about it. Awesome. That's a great comedy for sure. My number eight is Kung Fu Panda 2, which just blew me away. It is a great example of a sequel improving on its predecessor with, with really great visuals, uh, a really creative way to show flashbacks, and also a very intriguing clash of old and new technology in in terms of how to engage in combat. Uh, It's also, of course, got a really great voice cast. It's very interesting, very fun. Kung Fu Panda 2. My number seven is Bernie with Jack Black, Matthew McConaughey. Directed by Richard Linklater who did the Before Trilogy and uh, and uh, School of Rock. Oh, really? Yes. Well, this was really fun and unique. I watched this with my mother and brother when they were visiting for our wedding. But what an interesting film. And it's also a sort of true crime movie, isn't it? Yeah, it is actually based mm-hmm. on a real, real story. Bernie was a funeral director, and he was very cultured in a community of completely uncultured people, where, you know, the fact that he could say them as Rob uh, made him look so snooty and so foreign to everyone else and didn't bode well for him, unfortunately. But he was also really, really well-loved in that community. Yes, yes. And it just shows how quickly a community community can turn on you. Really great film. I highly recommend it. Uh, There's a horrible character in it, but it's okay. This is one of those films where the end is worth it. (laughs) Very good, love. My number seven is Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. I think this is almost a completely solid action franchise. It's one of the best action films you will find, and especially one of the best action series you'll find in recent memory. And come on, that, that, uh, what's the name of that building in, in, um... Dubai. Dubai, yeah, what's that name? Uh, unfortunately, I don't know its name, but it's the tallest one in the world. Yeah, something Khalifa. It, that, <laughs> that sequence is one of the most nail-biting, uh, edge-of-your-seat action sequences I have ever experienced. Of course, it probably helps that I'm afraid of heights, but... Needless to say, that film is really darn good. It introduces Jeremy Renner into the franchise, and it had a fairly decent villain. Michael Nickvist is notable because he just passed away a week or two ago. So you can enjoy him in this film. Paula Patton shines in this film. I really wish that she returned in the, uh, the follow-up to that film, Rogue Nation. 
uh, yeah, it's just a lot of fun. It's really great. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, this was the one directed by Brad Bird, who did Iron Giant and The Incredibles. So he he's doing something right, for sure. And it was a great transition into live action. I think this is a good example of sequels done right. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You're up, honey. My number six is Hannah. Talk about a strong female character. This was a really interesting and really fun way to show what a female assassin brought up from birth might look like. It's very raw. There isn't any sheltering. This is a very cold world that this woman young woman is in. That is an awesome pick. We might uh, hear more about that. My number six is my favorite romantic comedy from that year, Friends with Benefits, with Justin Timberlake and Myla Kunis. My favorite girl crush. (laughs) Yeah. Both of which are irresistible in this film. Both of which are hilarious in this movie. Uh, Of course, they star as two... People who make a verbal contract to just essentially be able to come together and get their yayas out and with no commitments whatsoever. Uh, does that last? Of course not, because it wouldn't be a romantic comedy if it did. Uh, if you miss this, it's definitely worth seeking out. Friends with Benefits, that's my number six. My number five is The Raid, an Asian film. Awesome pick. About... What a standoff. Uh, there's this building, essentially, that has multiple levels to it, filled with security, essentially. People that are living there, and in turn for living there, they are getting safety, but they're all criminals. It's this building completely full of criminals, full of weapons. A cop is done having this situation in his city, and they go in. This was Totally action-packed thriller. Fantastic. With amazing action, though. That's the thing, right? The action choreography is... It was like Jackie Chan on, like, steroids, drugs. I don't know. Something. Put it in there. Yeah. (laughs) That that is an awesome pick. For me, my next pick is, for number five, most appropriately, Fast Five. You did that on purpose. <laughs> That's not really your number five. It is just, my number no, five. It's yeah, not really. yeah, absolutely. You just wanted to link it. <laughs> You've heard me talk about this film before. It's the film that essentially steered and saved this Fast and Furious franchise from itself, steered it in a whole new direction. You have uh, elements of Ocean's Eleven in it, you have uh, this emphasis on family. I think it really started here, if I'm not mistaken. It is widely considered to be the best of the franchise. It is certainly one of the best. It has one of the best villains. And it is, most importantly, a lot of fun. If you want to hear more about that movie, go check out our Fast and Furious episode. But for now, I'm going to throw it back to Shanna. My number four is Hugo. And it's available to stream on Netflix. This was a fantastic piece of cinematography, a fantastic love note to the milk 
the, the milk, milk industry. In, the milking of film. <laughs> to the making of film. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I got to watch it in 3D. And it was just, it was so beautiful. I kind of cried most of it. Not from sadness, but just like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. <laughs> kind of like how a mom or dad cries about their daughter on their wedding day. So I highly recommend this film. It's beautiful. I'm not going to say anything because there's so many little nooks and crannies of stories that are happening throughout it. Go ahead and watch it. Just because it's 3D doesn't mean you won't enjoy it on streaming devices. Number four for me is X-Men First Class. By no means a perfect film. I would... At that time, counted as a really darn good reboot of the X-Men franchise. Unfortunately, it's apparently a prequel, and I don't think it works so well as a prequel, but it is a lot of fun. Matthew Vaughn, he of Kick-Ass, and the Kingsmen directed this film. And you know what he did for this, for this franchise? He made Magneto badass. He showed us what Magneto is capable of. And I think the strength of this film is Michael Fassbender as Magneto and his story primarily in this film. It is edgy. It takes uh, X-Men right to the edge of PG-13. It is great. Some of the best things you'll see in this entire franchise is Magneto's part in it, but you also have a really cool, fun cast of characters, too. That's hard to deny. It's um, 60s mod stylings is really fun, especially the opening title sequence is really cool. There's just a lot to enjoy in this film. My number three is Super 8. I love this film. This film is fantastic. This film is great. This film is awesome. I'm going to use all the words that I usually use because that's how how I feel about this film. It's about a... Talk about nostalgia. Yeah, we have it. (laughs) (laughs) We have a group of kids kind of in the 80s. That's correct, right? It's not the 70s. It's the 80s. Yeah. Okay. And it's a time of riding your bicycle to your friend. It's so cool. I wish I could have that in my life, but I, I, I just missed it, I guess. But here's all this group of friends. They're coming together. They're going to make a film. They're going to enter a competition. They love helping each other. They like being together. And something catastrophic happens, and they get it on film. Aliens, monsters, who knows? Go and check it out. It's really great. Oh, fanning. Oh. And it's directed by J.J. Abrams. Right. And Al Fanning was was quite the, the star in that film. I mean, she really stole the show and was quite a revelation. I remember watching that film and thinking, Dakota who? Because she was just so charming and engaging and you just wanted to see more of Al Fanning. And thankfully, we have been able to see more of her. So that's a great pick. My number three is the first of the three H's. Each of the next three films happen to start with an H. And my number three is Hannah, directed by Joe Wright, who directed previously Atonement, which also starred Saoirse Ronan. You know, I will highlight one of the things that Shanna didn't, which is this is essentially an existential hitman movie, and it is brilliant. It has a brilliant score, 
composed, I believe, by the Chemical Brothers to go along with it. This is propulsive. This movie does not stop. It explores identity better than most movies explore identity. And it has a delicious villain by Kate, played by Kate Blanchett. Oh, and yeah. She's really good at villainry. It's really hard not to appreciate Kate Blanchett in anything that she does. Uh, so that is definitely a favorite of mine. What is your second favorite film of the My year? My number two is Rise, Planet of the Apes. Mm. My number two is Rise, Planet of the Apes. I got to watch this after the sequel, and this was a very, very fun film. I loved how they made the foundation for this franchise. It starred James Franco and, of course, Andy Serkis as, as Caesar. And it's a great film, and it happens in San Francisco, and everybody should check it out, especially now that the third one is coming out very soon here. Yeah, it's a really good time to revisit it. That's a really good pick. My number two is Hugo, the second of three H movies. is available on Netflix, if you so desire, but here's the reason why it's my second favorite movie. Because it was... As a film buff, as a cinephile, as a movie lover, it was the greatest experience I had in the theater that year. There is another film that came out that year that tried to pay homage to the silent film era called The Artist. And unfortunately, it got rewarded over Hugo with the Best Picture Award from the Academy. Hugo puts that movie to shame. Directed by Martin Scorsese, an adaptation of the book Hugo Cabret. And this is a film that integrates film history with uh, the character George Méliès, uh, played by Ben Kingsley. And it's absolutely moving to tears. But it was in 3D, and that was essential to it because it was... Modern filmmaking, remarking on film, film's past. And because that was such an essential ingredient of what Scorsese's intent and themes of the film were, I have not revisited this film since. I've just retained that magical, moving, remarkable first-time experience in my mind. And it, it's always stuck with me. Uh, I love this film. My number one is X-Men First Class. Oh, really? Why is that? Because it's X-Men, first of all. Of course. (laughs) We've established. What's better than Star Wars for Shanna? (laughs) X-Men. And um, I just loved how they got this restarted. I loved Michael Fassbender. I think he's a perfect Magneto. So perfect. Now I'd like to see him with longer hair, if there's going to be another one, because I'd like to see that version of Magneto, please, and thank you. And I love James McAvoy. Um, I think my favorite scene in that film is when they come to Wolverine at the bar, and he's asking for, they ask him to join, and they're like, he's like, fuck off. Mild spoiler, (laughs) but yeah, that was a delight when that happened. Well, I mean, come on now, if if you're an X-Men fan, or if you even know X-Men exists, you should have watched it by now, so there you go. Fair point. (laughs) Fantastic film. So great. 
Awesome. Very cool. My favorite film of the year is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, part two. Really? Oh my God, yes. So think about it. This is a franchise. It was 10 years old at this point. Prior to this, there had not been a franchise that was more than three films that retained 98% of the same cast. The only cast member, I believe, that uh, changed in this entire franchise was uh, Michael Gambon taking over as Professor Dumbledore. That in itself should be recognized more because that is an achievement. Not only that, but this is a film that successfully paid off everything that came before it in the film series. Particularly, number two, The Chamber of Secrets, which is one of my favorites. Oh, Partially, my, my favorite is Prison of Azkaban. That's a great film, too. But one of the reasons why Prison, uh, Chamber of Secrets is one of my favorites is because so much of it pays off in Deathly Hollows more than any of the other chapters. This was a very satisfying conclusion. I, in all honesty, I see both parts of Deathly Hollows as one film, one long epic film. Part two is just the more exciting, battle-ridden half of the film, and it doesn't get more satisfying than this, people. So, it is my favorite film of 2011. What is your favorite film of 2011? Write in to the Gibson Review at gmail.com. That's going to about do it for us in this episode of The Movie Lovers. Shanna, where can people find you in the meantime on the internet? You can find all my social media channels through my website at www.shannapaxton.com. Remember to type it as you sing it. Awesome. And you can find me in a variety of places, including the main site, thegibsonreview.com. You can email at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Find on Facebook at the Gibson Review. And you can even find me on Flickchart at the Gibson 99. Go ahead and connect with me there. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Movie Lovers. Stay tuned. I believe our next episode will be a review, but it's kind of up in the air, so you'll probably see notes in the show notes or on the blog as to what is our final decision. I uh, will probably also count down our favorite films of 2010 in our next episode. That will be in two weeks. Until then, this is Jeff and Shanna signing off. Goodbye. Happy 4th of July. Happy 4th of July and keep loving the movies.